Welcome to Short Course, episode 21, for June 22nd, 2018. This week on the podcast, I'm changing up the format a little bit, and we'll do something certainly not original to uh, to this podcast, but something that we're doing for the first time, and that's a Q&A show. So put out the call on Instagram and Facebook for questions. Of course, you can always send me a question anytime to uh, podcast at barryshooting.com, and I'll either use it in a show, give you an answer back, or you know whatever. However the however the shows are working out that week, we'll uh, we'll get you an answer one way or another. So the first question, so the first two questions, it's interesting. Uh, they both have to do with this idea of what I'm calling production 15, which is shooting production with 15 round magazines, also known as IPSC production. So you know, getting ready for the IPSC nationals in Florida a little under a month from now, I've been shooting club matches in production 15. And the so the first question here is from John M. on Facebook. And he asks, regarding production 15, for USPSA, given the mag capacity limits in many states and the competitive landscape, how are the trade-offs worth making the switch? So first off, I'm honestly not saying that that the trade-offs are necessarily worth making the switch. Like when I talk about production 15 and how I like it, I'm just saying I like it. I think it's cool. As someone who lives in North Carolina, who's, I mean, I guess Washington DC is a, is a banned state, but they hardly have any handguns anyway. You know, I'm so far away from California, New York, Massachusetts. I'm so far away from any of the banned states that I, I don't even know anybody that has 10 round mags or anything like that. So I, I can't really speak for them and, and I'm not going to try. Uh, but I know for me, I think it's, it is nothing but a net good from a pure shooting experience. I think it makes the stages more interesting. It gives you more options. It, you know, to me, I, I like it more now on the whole, I think production is still fine, but it's a fun tweak. I'm enjoying experimenting with it. And, and I'm happy to say that I like it and, and wouldn't mind from my narrow perspective, seeing it in USPSA, the, the costs that John refers to is to me, it doesn't hold a lot of water because the idea is if you live in a banned state, which I looked it up, the current, the States, according to Wikipedia that currently have 10 round magazine capacity limits are California, Connecticut, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, and Vermont. And California is really kind of strange because they grandfather in, magazines before their ban went into effect. So anybody who has a gun that could plausibly have had mags from before the ban has gotten their hands on magazines, you know, high capacity mags. So they still shoot limited all the way up. I don't know how many people shoot open out there, but you know, they can get 2011 mags. And so they, they shoot normal capacity. So the idea is if someone from one of those States where within the state, they all shoot 10 round, everything, you know, limited 10, everything open 10, the whole deal. If they wanted to travel to out of state to a major match and be competitive at that major match, then they can shoot production and everybody's still going to be on equal 10 round footing. I guess to me, it's, it's an odd thing to say, I want to put in the effort to book a hotel, drive out of state, register for an out of state match, but the effort to go to acquire or borrow or arrange to, you know, borrow a couple of high capacity magazines for the duration of the match, that that's too far. I can't put in that level, level of effort, but I can travel out of state for a match. I, you know, I, I've never been in that situation, so I can't really say, but it just, it seems like it's catering to a very small niche. You know, someone who's really 
gunning for it, you know, someone who's, you know, really going to be, be trying to make a run for the title at whatever the match is, they're going to find some way to get high cap mags, you know, whether they borrow them from somebody or, or, you know, whatever magazines, at least in production, they're not really tuned to the gun. So you don't really need, you know, your individual mags. Um, so just sort of aiming this rule narrowly at that, that little thin area of competitors, you know, that can travel out of state, but not have mags. I, I don't know. It just, it just doesn't make too much sense to me, but I don't think that's why the rule is on the books. I think it's left over from inertia from when the division was created during the assault weapons ban, but it is what it is. Uh, so Daryl on Facebook snuck in two questions. The first one is also about production 15. And he says, would you rather see the mag capacity or stage design come over from IPSC to USPSA? Well, to me, the magazine capacity is just a rule where stage design is a whole rich, you know, culture of what's expected. You know, what kind of stages do do shooters expect? Um, there's a really interesting line. I'm trying to remember where he said it. Ste- ben Steger once was talking about, you know, traveling overseas and, you know, at, at some match or another, you know, if they see eight or ten hit factor stages, they, they kind of frown at that. And they're like, well, that's, you know, that's not really shooting. That's not very serious. Uh, and, and that's just so that, you know, that's just what they expect. And that's secondhand. So, you know, who knows? But uh, it's it's the culture. It's it's what shooters expect. And shooters in the U.S. expect or want high round count stages or reward match directors that, that put on high round count stages. And so trying to change that culture is a much, much bigger request. And, and I don't know that that's something we can do. If you wanted to change the rules to impose something more Ipsic-like, you could borrow the three-two-one rule, where they have to have three short courses of twelve rounds or less for every two medium courses of twenty-four rounds or less to every long course, which is thirty-two rounds or less. Um, I think that might be a little bit restrictive. I don't. I don't think that would go over well in the U.S. But in my mind, something I've always played around with is the idea that in a match, you know, what would happen if the average round count on every stage was twenty-two? So for every 32 rounder, you put in a 12 rounder, basically kind of like they offset each other. And then you can have a, a 20 round stage and a 24 round stage and they offset each other. I mean, I guess I've seen other people throw around the idea of instead of a three, two, one short, medium, long, have like a two, 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 you know, so in a six stage match, you would have two shorts, two mediums, two longs that might get a little unbalanced. I mean, I know why match directors like having similar round counts on every stage. It makes the stages flow in roughly the same amount of time. I get that. Like there's a match logistical challenge to be solved here. I'm not denying that. Uh, But I think you can have a 32 round stage that runs faster than a really slow, complex mover heavy 12 round stage. So round count isn't, isn't the only thing to the equation, but you know, if, if you were going to try and change the rules in that direction, that's how you do it. Um, I can't really say, you know, not being a match director, I I can't really say what they should do. But certainly I think the advantage of a rule like that is it, it makes, it gives you some incentive to economize, you know, for lack of a better term, it puts you on a bit of a budget. You can't just throw up as many targets as you want. You have to say, well, if I put a, if I really want this array of four targets here, then I'm going to have to pull, you know, two targets from some other stage somewhere else in the match. And so you, 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 you really, you value each individual target more. You don't just throw them all up wherever you want. And that's the idea. But again, you know, I've never really been a, a match director or stage designer, so I, I can't, I can't really tell them how, uh, what's, you know, what's good for them. Uh, so Daryl's second question is also during the road to GM, what was the greatest revelation you acknowledged and at what level did you first see it? B, A, M class, etc. So there really 
aren't a ton. Like there've been, it's been a slow journey of just constant, you know, tweaks and discoveries. But if I, if I had to pick the biggest one, it would be the value of live fire and having a place where I can go and set up. You know, I, for the longest time I made excuses and I dry fired my butt off and I got into a class through dry fire, but eventually I got in at a local gun club where I could set up stages uh, or drills, you know, multiple target drills. And that, that was when I was able to really start running the trigger hard, do a run, paste up all the targets, do a run, paste up all the targets and really build that feedback of here's, here's what it looks like in the sites. Here's what it looks like on the target and just start building that relationship. And that in my history, that is correlated with breaking out of a class and going into M class. So, you know, i I really resisted it for a while. I tried to just do the dry fire thing and shoot lots of matches. But at the end of the day, you know, if you really do want to get serious about the sport, you, you need to put in the work, you know, to join this gun club, it was, it was like a six month process. Luckily, a number of the gun club members were USPSA shooters. And so they were able to, to help me out and, and do some of the paperwork to, to get me introduced and inducted and everything. But, you know, it, it was, it was a process. It definitely wasn't. I woke up one day and joined the club it you know I, I went through the process but the end result was I had a place where I could put in the practice to get to the next level and I, and I really tried to try to avoid it for for a long time and uh, there just really was no way around it uh, Joe on Facebook asks when running to the next shooting area and you must stop in a certain spot to engage targets are you focused on the spot to stop or on the target or somewhere else Let's say you must take eight to 10 steps to get from one shooting area to the next shooting area. I say this just to make sure you understand that nearly everyone will be moving at a fast pace. So basically the question is when you're moving, where are you looking? You're looking at the target. Are you looking at the ground or somewhere else? And the answer is looking at the ground or whatever your breaking marker is. So in some cases it might be a barrel. It might be, you know, not necessarily a spot on the ground, but in my mind, I want, you know, the big toe of my left foot lined up with the edge of, of a wall or lined up with the edge of a table or, you know, some kind of reference for that marker. The problem with trying to look for the target is, generally speaking, it's hard to know. Like, you might be able to see the target through a mesh wall, but you won't really know exactly when it's going to come into firing view until it's there. And then you got to stop all of a sudden. Like, you see it and, and you have to stop. And honestly, that's, that's when people fall down. Like if you try and stop all at once really hard, you, you know, dig your heel in, that's when your heel goes out from under you and you fall flat on your back. Like that's how people fall in, in matches. And that's not a good strategy falling or not, you know, trying to stop suddenly is, is no bueno. Whereas when you train your body to run to a certain spot, you will develop sort of a natural sense of as you get closer, the speed you need to maintain to get there. It's, you know, it's like the old, the old idea about, you know, your body just kind of figures it out, like tossing your car keys up in the air. Like when you look at a spot and you move towards it, it, it interacts with your body's natural ability to move and estimate distance and, and know your stopping capability, assuming you practice aggressive movement in, in practice and that sort of thing. But you'll, you'll start to learn how much you need to break, what good breaking feels like. As you get better, you'll start to pick like a breaking marker or some idea of, okay, about three steps before this position, I'm going to want to start breaking, you know, just getting a sense of how long the movement is, how hard you're going to be moving, how fast you're going to be moving. You know, if you have to go around a corner, you're not going to carry that much momentum so you can break later, just getting a sense for that sort of thing. But you, you always want to be looking at a, a spot on the ground or 
you know, some kind of physical marker that your body is moving closer towards. And then if you've planned your stage correctly, when you hit that spot, you should just like coast in, put your outside foot, just like lay it down. You're not really doing any braking with that last foot. It just comes into position like, you know, like an airplane just gliding down onto the runway, just setting down. And then you just start shooting and the target should be right in your vision. If you've walked the stage through, planned your spot and, and hit it like you planned. Taylor M via email. He says, I have a close friend who I look up to for advice and who really pulled me into the shooting world. He has a rather large state match coming up this weekend, so the timing couldn't be better, presumably for this Q&A episode. He's clearly got what it takes to win the match, and he has several wins under his belt already in both IDPA and USPSA. However, for any shooter, the mental element always plays a part and can contribute to what I refer to as match anxiety. I would almost describe this as psyching myself out that maybe I won't do well or maybe it's all going to go to hell in a handbasket. Maybe it's just self-pressure to do well. How do you move past the mental roadblocks? Well, first of all, experience. Um, that's that's honestly a big one. I've I've just I've when I get this feeling, it's familiar. I've been here before and I've learned that whether or not I I feel this way, it doesn't really impact my shooting, that all I can do is double down on the process, you know, trying to channel, basically there's just, there's nothing useful to do with that feeling. And so the best thing you can do is just as best you can, just set it aside. Don't try and pretend like it's not there, but just say, okay, I feel that set it aside and then just double down on your process. Now don't try and ratchet up your process, but all the, all the things that you know, you should feel your hand on the gun during the draw, your grip, your sight picture, just, you know, double down on on visualizing those and really getting the visualization and the feeling of those as you plan your stage. And anytime you, you feel that pressure in the context of a stage, you know, then just focus on the planning. Just redouble your efforts there. The other thing is is just learning to really not trust yourself. Like you really don't have a sense of how well the match is going. Um, what I find is when a match is going really well, the stages just go by in a blur because a really good stage, generally speaking, is unremarkable. Like if you really have some crazy lucky burn it down run, like maybe you'll remember that. But I, as a rule, I don't have those. Uh, good stages just flow, nothing goes wrong, and they're unremarkable. Whereas when you have bad stage after bad stage, each one is memorable. And so when those memories start stacking up, they, they kind of weigh on you. And so you just, you, you, you have to become comfortable with the idea that you're not really going to have any accurate sense of how well you're doing in the match. I mean, you might know if you've made some, some blunders, but that doesn't really tell you how, how you're doing compared to everybody else. You might have been fast enough to make up for the blunders. You don't know. And, and so just embracing that ignorance saying, I'm not even going to try and guess. I'm just going to look at the stage in front of me, shoot it, double down on the things that I know how to do. And just keep shooting because what happened on the last stage has no bearing on this stage. It just wipe it out. You know, it, it, it's over. It's done with this stage is its own chance to do well. And that's, that's all that's in front of you. And you can figure out whether or not the last stage was as bad as you thought, or it wasn't when the results are posted, but all you can do by sort of spinning it around in your head while you're shooting is just make things worse for you. And this is, so this is a related question, more talking about the match as a whole, uh, from Dylan, also via email. How do you handle match pressure, specifically at your level when you have a chance to win and it's yours to lose? How do you stay focused on the performance when self-doubt wants to take over and you wonder if it's enough to get the desired results? 
I understand you should stay focused on the performance, not the results, but when you and others have the expectation that you'll win, how do you overcome? Um, honestly, this is kind of an odd question for me just because I don't, I really don't think about expectations. I, I don't think about what, how I, how I appear to everyone else. I don't really think about that. Uh, maybe, maybe that's just because I've learned that it, that it's not super productive, but I, I just, I know that the best way to achieve a good result is to not sort of see myself in the third person and see myself through someone else's lens, but just to double down, you know, focus on the, the sort of internal process, the visualization, the, the steps, you know, not doing anything new during the match, just following, doing exactly what I know how to do. And letting everything else, just sort of blocking everything else out of my mind. Uh, because, you know, ultimately, I just, I don't, I, I, I don't think in the terms of, you know, matches, mine to win or lose. Because whether I win it or I lose it, I learn something from it. You know, if, if the match goes well and I take the title, and maybe because, you know, I just happen to be the best guy to show up and, you know, my competition got a flat tire on the way there. You know, I don't know, but I can look at, I can look at the stages and, and I'm always interested in, did I objectively shoot this stage well? Did I, where could I have done better? Because there's always something you could have done better. But, you know, am I relatively happy with this stage? And if I happen to string together a series of stages that I'm relatively happy with, then that's what I'm looking for. Whether or not the actual overall result is is a win by 10% or 1% or a loss by 1% or a loss by 10%, I, you know, I, I, I just, I guess I don't, I don't, I try not to think in those terms. Now, what does, what I do struggle with is how do you stay focused on the performance when self-doubt wants to take over and you wonder if it's good enough to get the desired results? Uh, that's a, that's a great question. And that self-doubt is, is definitely something I struggle with. And the best way I can say is that going back to what I said earlier about your subjective perception of things is you just learn that it's wrong. Like it's just always going to be wrong. If something feels fast, all that means is that it was out of control and it might've been out of control and you got lucky or it might've been out of control and you got alpha mic no shoot. And so that feeling of fast is actually to me a bad thing. Like I don't want to feel fast during a match because that means I was pushing past my level of control. When I'm shooting under control, it might be fast, but it never subjectively feels fast. It's, you know, hand on the gun, grip comes together, sights come up, press the trigger, press the trigger, transition the gun, press the trigger. And, and how long those actual intervals take in real time is almost unrelated to how it feels. Because if you rush by, you know, a tenth of a second, it feels fast, but it isn't actually going to be that much faster over the course of the entire stage. But that difference between a 15 split and a 25 split might be the difference between two alpha and alpha mic. And so just learning to not judge in the moment and not to worry too much about, you know, what you can do today, knowing you've put in the training and really ultimately the match is going to come down to who makes the fewest mistakes. Um, one of the interesting things about, you know, shooting at a, at a high level is every, you know, as you, as you go higher up in the ranks, people actually start shooting at a similar and similar pace. You know, the, the raw times as you go up the skill distribution, actually get narrower and narrower and closer together. What separates people is mistakes. What separates, you know, the match winner and third place is who can just be just patient enough on the sites to, to get the alpha without being super slow and who can, you know, get the, get the two hits on the swinger and not tag the no shoot. It, it's all about just not making mistakes. 
And so keeping the right level of, you know, not going caterpillar slow, but keeping the right level of aggression, the right level of speed, but just looking for correctness, looking for precision, looking for flawlessness, if if that's the right word, and just trying to, to minimize any of those hiccups. And there, there will always be little hiccups, but overcoming them, you know, you might get a, a slightly wonky grip on the draw, but just correcting it and getting on with the stage, not letting it bog you down and distract you for the rest of the stage. And then just, just trusting, trusting that skill. And, and over time, you know, shooting matches and learning that when you do that, that's what will produce not necessarily the best outcome in the sense of you winning, but that will, that will get you the closest to your theoretical maximum of, of what you can actually do on the day of that match. And just learning to, to trust that and not really trying to imagine that you're some better shooter than you are today. Because that kind of pushing is is what induces mistakes. You know, trying something that that you haven't tested, trying to do something that you saw someone else do, and you think, oh, I got to do that to keep up. You don't. You know, he he might have burned one stage down, but if he's shooting crazy out of control and he hooked up on this stage, he's gonna he's gonna crash and burn on the next stage. So don't you know? Don't let one stage psych you out. Don't let one you know good time psych you out. Trust that a match is a series of stages. And it's not about winning any individual stage. It's about performing consistently, committing the fewest errors, and staying strong through the whole match. That's what will actually get you to, uh, you know, on the podium. Trying to say, you know, this this stage is my chance to pull it all out. Like, that's a recipe for absolute failure. And, you know, you just, you, you have to trust that by not weighting one stage any heavier than the rest and just treating, you know, each one as, you know, an, an aggregate component of your score and just trying to do each one well, that's what will add up to a, to a successful match. Stage wins, you know, really, really don't matter. All right. Well, that was fun. Um, appreciate you guys giving me a really interesting range of questions. Uh, obviously some technical, some rules based and, uh, and some mental. So that wraps up this episode of Short Course. You can follow me on Facebook at Ben Barry Shooting and Instagram at BS Barry. I post a video of all my matches at youtube.com slash Ben Barry USPSA. You can email me at podcast at barryshooting.com. Talk to you next time.